0: I do think you need to to take a personal inventory. What is what is the, the lifestyle? What is what is what do you think your behavioral traits are? Do you have the discipline to sit there on a Saturday night and study? Because you're making that decision, whether you know it or not. You're you're choosing two pathways.
1: Welcome to the Health Science Coach Podcast. My name is Drew Garner and I'm a health science and physical education teacher. This is a podcast to help students, parents, and recent graduates learn about pathways into healthcare care and sports medicine careers. These industry professionals lay out how their experiences have helped them get to where they are now. If you enjoy this content, please subscribe to the channel or download through your podcast player. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. Now let's dig in. Today we get the pleasure of meeting with Dr. William Miller. He is an evolution evolutionary physician and an academic and private practice for over 30 years as a biologist, author, and consultant with specific expertise in the microbiome. Dr. Miller, how are you doing today?
0: I'm terrific, thanks. Appreciate thanks it. for coming mm-hmm. on
1: and uh, spending some time with us and talking about what you do for your career. Um, as a physician, um, I guess let's start there. Uh, you know, you have 30 years experience uh, in the field. Um, what type of stuff do you do? Uh, is your expertise in? I guess.
0: Well, my expertise when I was in active medical practice was okay. in imaging, in okay. diagnostic imaging, particularly uh, the developing the new techniques at the time that I had just completed my training. A computed tomography, advanced ultrasound, and then magnetic resonance imaging began, plus a whole range of interventional work, which I did a large amount of that during my career. So I, I was. Very fortunate to be in a, a field of medicine that was really exploding. And uh, uh, the reason that I ended up in diagnostic imaging as opposed to a different form of practice uh, was exactly because of all of these new inventions that were uh, really cascading forward in the set 1970s.
1: Okay. And that
0: was extremely exciting. I was originally intent on being a surgeon Mm -hmm. and uh, I was going through a surgical internship at a place that had the second computed tomographic scanner in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the amount of excitement that that caused was enormous. And surgeons, uh, my colleague, well, us as a group, my colleagues started to develop the feeling that, uh, surgery was going to change very dramatically and a lot of medical decision making was going to go fall into the hands of the imagers right the surgeon would become more of a the technician R- there would be very little exploratory surgery if you knew ahead of time what you're going to encounter or very likely to know so we there was a feeling that the most exciting part of medicine was migrating to this new field and um i just wanted to be part of that and so i was Fortunate enough to be accepted in a in a program, mm-hmm. and it, it worked out perfectly for me. I, I wanted to be in a field that was always changing. That's something some of the the young people who you mentor have to think about. Do they they have to explore themselves and ask whether they like routine or not? It's it's really it's really very important to ask yourself these questions, if you're not listening to others tell you what they think you ought to like or dislike. You have to ask yourself, not the specific field, but what is the kind of a, of a life do you want to live? Do you want it to be super ordinary, very orderly or do you like surprises? You know, these these behavioral differences are the critical uh, different differentiation between a happy and an unhappy work-life. Um, if If you're a person that craves a routine and you're in a field, in which you're constantly be throwing new things you're going to be miserable mm-hmm. and, and and the reverse i, mean, I think you know it uh, teachers are always throwing new things in their classrooms they have to like the unexpected or they wouldn't go into the field yep. um yep. there are lots of things that are very ordinary they don't change from year to year in medicine the field that was changing most rapidly when i was going through is this new imaging all of these new techniques they needed to be explored they needed to, uh, the, the, their limits needed to be identified. I was very pleased to be part of that. And so every day that I came into work, I would be part of finding out something new about what I was doing. And, uh, I, I think that really defined the field for me. And then at a certain point, um, I felt I'd reached that limit. And that made me interested in going in another set of directions, which is what I'm doing now.
1: And then, so like you had said, you had you studied uh, diagnostic radiology um, for your undergraduate degree. Um, can you talk a little bit about that program and how it kind of uh, got started and uh, what what that kind of looked like as far as uh, classes that you took uh, and sure. that kind of stuff?
0: Well, you've you've managed to talk to an oddball, Drew. I just it's, as it happens, uh, I was. I'll talk in more general terms because I went through a very exceptional program. I went through a program that was uh, only two years of college and I skipped two years of college. And then I went to the regular four years of medical school. This was a special program. It's hard to believe, but back in the 60s and 70s, uh, there was a critical concern that there was a, a deep shortage of physicians. And one of the uh, things that were were being tried around the country, a few programs, a few universities, were trying to develop a more streamlined means. And so I was actually accepted into medical school and college at the same time in Uh, high school. And uh, I don't believe there may or may not be a six-year medical program. I think the program that I was in at Northwestern University, I believe, is now a seven-year program. And I don't know how well it would work for everyone else. But for me, it was terrific. It was just what I liked. It was um, half were specialized courses and half were courses that I could take on my own. I mean, on my own meaning they were my electives. And because the grades on those courses really didn't matter, I really could do very different things than than the average person. So if I needed to get into medical school, as competitive as that was, I wouldn't have taken as my first class advanced painting, which is one of my electives, for instance, or an advanced philosophy class, because I would have been prepared for that. There was no way I would risk getting a good grade point average and taking those kinds of courses. So I I had a very extraordinary um, opportunity, and I really did take great advantage of it. For those people that are in high school, and i trying to figure out is if a medical career is for them. Uh, I do think you need to to take a, a personal inventory. What is what is the, the lifestyle? What is, what is what do you think your behavioral traits are? Do you have the discipline to sit there on a Saturday night and study? Because you're making that decision, whether you know it or not. You're you're choosing two pathways. There's no way to get through that kind of rigorous environment. And not sacrifice and not everyone wants to. In fact, the point of college, (laughs) if you'll allow me, is is to filter you out, is to find out what is your personality, to explore that. Um, You're not going to learn that many things in college that you're actually going to carry through into whatever you choose to do for your working life. If you take a Russian literature class, that may be highly rewarding, but you're unlikely to discuss that at work. It's it's just won't carry through. Um, Even if you go into science and STEM classes, the actual working knowledge from the material you you gain in college is slight. Compared to what you really will be learning at the at the technical school, the medical school, the PhD program, uh, the the master's degree program in microbiology or whatever it is that you enter into. It's it, it's a misapprehension to think that you're going to college uh, in order to prepare yourself for, for a career in the sense of giving you actual ground state, the subs, the substrates that you need to do that work. On the other hand, it is doing something extraordinarily valuable. It, it is giving you time to assess where you stand, are you willing to be patient enough? Are you willing to be deliberative in your studies? Are you willing to sit still for long periods of time and concentrate, or not? And and it's no shame if you don't want to do that. It's just best to find it out early, and that's a that's an important part of college. I'm I'm a big believer in in really struggling to have a personal inventory, to really understand your physiology. So. In. What I do is all about the world of cells and how cells work together to make you you they, they, you're trillions of cells together, tens of trillions of cells together and they're working together. Seamless seamlessly to make you you and they're delivering together their collective impulses that become your motivations, they become your behavioral traits. And it's very hard for you to go against those. You can do it for a little while, but it's very hard to go beyond those natural rhythms. And we all have them. And I think high school and college are great times to search those things out. Uh, Not merely just interests, but motivations. Do I want to work like a dog or not? Is money really that important to me? Will I sacrifice sleep for it or not? Would I rather have a wonderful, lazy Sunday, Sunday or be on call? I, it's just, you, it's, you have to make these decisions. You, you have to make economic decisions. Right. I want a certain lifestyle. I can't live without that lifestyle or that lifestyle repulses me. I, I think it's so unnecessary. I think that's actually um, bad for me and society or whatever you think but you you really need to figure that out because the no matter how hard you try to go against it you can't sustain that for decades you you've got to be in rhythm and being in balance with your personal rhythm i think is the only way to sustain yourself and your well-being over
1: time yeah that's pretty pretty in-depth of uh this discussion of trying to figure out who you are and what you like and, you know, really understanding that personal inventory like you brought up a couple of times of, you know, what your lifestyle is, what you want to be able to have and achieve throughout your goals uh, through high school, through college, and then later on in life and setting yourself up for that. Um, So when you were- Dude, dude, let
0: me me interrupt you for a second. You'll pardon me. There's a lot to be said for doing jobs that you don't like. In other words, I'm not saying you should take a job you don't like to start with. But I think there's a great deal of personal growth. So you say, well, how do I find out what I like? You know, how do I really know that? Well, I'll tell you what, you go take a few jobs and you'll find out what you really like. You'll, yeah. and I'll tell you, finding out what you hate, finding out what makes you miserable is a huge leap in the proper direction to finding out the real you. Um, You know, my wife worked in a a fast food restaurant when she was very young. Um, It was a formative experience. It it changed her entire outlook. Uh, I did um, bunches of short time jobs uh, as I went through uh, summers and uh, undergraduate school and even in medical school, I did certain uh, things to earn some extra money, just didn't have the money. Um, I learned a lot by what I didn't like when when in in the terms of medical school, you get rotations through different subspecialty areas. So you go through medicine, surgery, pediatric, psychiatry, and OB-GYN. The, the biggest pathway to understanding what you wanted to be was what you knew you didn't want to be. And once you've eliminated that that list, you could actually cone down pretty quickly on the few remaining pathways that really looked to you as though that would make, you could be contented in that direction. And so I think um, challenging work experiences at any age are terrific teachers. Um, And if you hate a job, don't say I made a mistake. Celebrate that you you went through an experiment that taught you what you didn't like I mean if you take a job in retail and you find out you can't stand it it's a good thing to know that ahead of time right it really focuses your brain you might want to be a teacher that's an extraordinarily different experience
1: yeah um so then when you were in high school what what made you want to go into medical school and and choose um, northwestern as your your school of choice
0: uh well northwestern was easy uh that was the school that offered the six-year medical program so okay. But the question of why I wanted to be a doctor uh, is a, is <clears throat> fair, but you have to put anyone's listening has to put themselves in the shoes of a teenager. Um, and it's it, it'll sound odd. And I know people expect me to say, well, it's the noble thing to do. And it was service. And those are important. I learned how important those things were, but I didn't start there. I started trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I knew I didn't work want to work for a company. I, I had enough self inventory to know that for me to be working with um, it, like a like an IBM or something like that at that time, that was the, <clears throat> a super strict culture. Right. Um, but that wasn't going to be for me. That I wasn't going to be able to to fit in that mold very well. What I? thought about medicine was I liked science very much. I I had the aptitude for it that helped. Um, It was a very respected field. It's in in our world, uh, physicians are respected, but they aren't held in the same regard that they were when I was very young. It was uh, in my neighborhood. uh, It was an interesting neighborhood. You got into medical school, you're like a made man. Um, You were, as a, as a young male in high school, you're instantly taller and better looking. It was it was. I know this sounds ridiculous, and how why would that be a motivation? Well, those were the motivations of high school teenager. I mean, you're asking me what what motivated me at that age. You're not asking me what I think should have motivated me, but it, what it, what did motivate me? I did like the idea of service, of being in service, to something. I liked the concept of of, of that idealism. That was very much in fashion in, in the time when I was young. It was, it was a very idealistic age. Um, it expressed itself in many ways, including the hippie movement as one other form of idealism. But uh, that was not me. I was a very uh, ordinary type in that regard. Uh, but the, uh, the idealism of that era was highly influential and that mattered. Um, and Then lastly, when I said that, I didn't think I could be very good and call corporate culture. At that time in medicine, it was really a model of the small practice. It was just you in your own practice, you know, like the town doctor. Right. Or I mean, it was almost like my ideas were from like from movies, uh, hardly from real life. Um, what medicine grew into was a huge corporate. Type. So now. Uh, but when it comes to a personality trait, I chose medicine because I didn't want to be a part of a big corporate uh, enterprise. I right. didn't want to deal with that kind of those personalities and that kind of infighting that I knew from my father existed in that world. That, I just, that was not what I wanted. Uh, if you go into medicine now, you're going to have that. Pretty much, you're either going to be a quiet employee or you're going to Deal with this kind of corporate bureaucracy. It's changed entirely. But those were the motivations of a high schooler, and they were reasonable. They were, they were honorable and reasonable motivations for their time.
1: Yeah. Um, so you've been in business, or you've been in uh, the medical field for over 30 years, uh, and you started to write some books uh, a little more recently. Um, how did you kind of think about becoming an author and wanting to write books?
0: Well, as I said, I I, my my pathway is very unusual, but I think people might be interested. I'm an evolutionary biologist. That means I think about um, how did we get to become what we are from the single cells where life began billions of years ago. What's the story? So in vague terms, I knew from my scientific background that Darwin had talked about survival of the fittest that Uh, And I knew uh, about genetics, certainly. And I knew that there were mutations. And I knew that those two linked together somehow to make us me. But my interest in in evolutionary biology was very tiny. What happened was really extraordinary. I was going to a medical meeting in Chicago. And uh, these are several days of sitting still. As I mentioned, you have to determine your personality type. Can you sit still for hours on end and listen to people feed you information? And 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 receive it and actually uh, assimilate it. Um, well, I do have limits. And along about the afternoon of the third day, I turned to a, a very smart colleague of mine, uh, just happened to be at the same meeting. I said, I got to get out of here. I can't take it anymore. Let's go someplace this afternoon. Let's why don't we go to one of Chicago's museums? And there was either the Art Institute uh, or I knew the Field Museum, Natural History. And I I said, you pick it. We'll go. And he goes, well, let's go to the that Field Museum. I've never been there and I haven't been there. So I don't know who's listening that may have ever been to the Field Museum in Chicago, but as you enter into this beautiful, massive building, there's this huge central rotunda, And in one side of it, the dominating one side of it, is the, the best fossilized T-Rex skeleton in yep. the world. And it's, I like to say it's a boy named Sue. Uh, no one knows if it's a boy or a girl, but there's that Johnny Cash song from a long time ago. But the fossil is called Sue. That's its name. And it's uh, Titanic and uh, just jaw dropping. So I'm looking at it, but I noticed something that really surprised me. Um, because I'm an imager, I really know human anatomy very well. I know things like where the muscles insert on bones because they have certain Irregular edges compared to smooth bone. You can tell a lot about the muscle, the, the musculature from the bones. So, and I know all, I know the shape of the vertebrae very well. I, I look at them every day. I know uh, the shape of the ribs. I know the shape of the human pelvis and the hip bones. Um, and I'm looking at this, this gargantuan skeleton and I'm seeing there are surprising resemblances. Between, I mean, given the difference in scale, which is right. unbelievably great. But the, the humerus bone, the upper arm bone, there's a, there was a strong resemblance. The, the pelvis, a slightly different shape, but it, it, it served the same purpose. It was the same arc of bone. The hip sockets were amazingly similar. Yeah. The thigh bones were very much alike including muscle insertions. The vertebrae are very much alike. And I'm just trying to figure this out. This this beast, this this species. Um, apparently dominated. Planetary environments for maybe 8 million years and then died out 66, 70 million years ago. Um, I didn't know anything about uh, fancy terms in evolution or anything like that, I just. I just felt it was astounding, and it, I, I just couldn't imagine how mutations, accidental mutations in DNA, could produce these results. And and then I would look something like it as as the surviving, not the, as the next species along the way. I just wanted to understand why. And I'm sensing, saying these things to my partner, and he simply says, uh, "It's you're really wasting your time. We already have the answers." And it's all a matter of the length of time. It all gets ironed out over time. And I couldn't accept that. And I don't know why, Drew. That was a specific flashpoint for me, but I needed to know. And fortunately, there was the Internet was available at that moment. And I decided to research things and um, an alternative point of view developed. And from that, I, I knew that I needed to express it. And from that. Uh, Colonel is now seven books in the the doing and uh, several dozen academic papers Uh, and I I think I've had a consequential part in beginning to change the narrative of evolution, how we understand it. Uh, The concept that I would ever take this pathway, no one is more surprised than I, it was absolutely unpredictable.
1: So your latest book is called "How or Bioverse: How the Cellular World Contains the Secrets, the Life's Biggest Questions." Um, and it, one of the main topics is talking about the error of the cell. Can you explain kind of what that error of the cell means and how you can your cells help you live uh, a happy and intelligent life?
0: Yes. Um, first, I want to emphasize I've got really good news. You know, we live in in difficult times. It feels really tumultuous. It feels like we're at each other's throats. It feels like a difficult time, certainly difficult economically. Um, But there are countervailing things going on that are really important. And one of them is there's an explosion of scientific knowledge that looks inward. So you can look outward with the telescope. And we've always expected we would learn a lot more about ourselves by looking at telescopes and trying to understand the, the the cosmos through the telescope well to to our surprise we're finding a lot more about ourselves by looking inward through microscopes and new the new kinds of specialized techniques that are being developed and what we're beginning to understand is radically different idea of ourselves and of the cells that make us so There are two principal things that constitute what I like to call the ear of the cell. First is you are cellular, no matter how you feel. I look in the mirror. I see Bill Miller. I think, oh, what a great looking guy I am. And no one else does. But I feel like a single person. I mean, I'm just, it's totally convincing. I am a single person, except I'm not at all. I am tens of trillions of cells, and and the part that really interested me when I started to to study evolutionary biology was at least half of me is microbial. It's not even me in the sense. It's me. Yes, of course I have my body cells. These are specialized cells with a nucleus. They've got special names. We don't need to go into that. Uh, And they're definitely me. But then there's another fraction of me, bacteria, fungi, Viruses and other types of cells that are actually different species, but they're also me. They're me because they form an absolutely central part of my metabolism, and they influence my mood and behaviors and my motivations and impulses. And it, it, it's it's this was very hard to believe when it was first found out, but now it's it's confirmed and uh, science. Doesn't move as rapidly as people imagine from movies and TV and and even magazine articles. Science is deliberative, and t- it takes a lot of time to change minds. But now what we are we know what we're called holobionts. It really means superorganisms. We are this intense combination of cells, and the second principle is. Yes, I am tens of trillions of cells. And the surprising thing is each and every single one of them is conscious and intelligent. So we used to think that these cells were like little bots. You know, you just all these little tiny bots like thermostats and they just kind of jiggle around with each other. And um, they have nothing to do with your conscious thoughts because you're a human and your conscious thoughts are a much higher level and you're capable of abstraction. And these cells are uh, have no inner life. They have no experiences. Well, that's just all wrong. (laughs) They are intelligent in and of themselves, intelligent at their scope and scale. That doesn't mean intelligent like you and me. Um, They're not going on Tinder to try to get a date or anything. They're just, they are competent, problem-solving, communicating, and social. So what does all this mean? It means that all of this new knowledge combined with these great new techniques, that we have to explore this, these these inner lives of cells means that we're going to be able to partner with them correctly and exploit them for our better health and well-being. We will do that through uh, they will help us devise new metabolites that they they will instruct us on how to partner with them together so that we collect the proper cells together to, to correct chronic diseases. Like diabetes and hypertension and arthritis and all of these things that we believe are inevitable products of growing old, they they will they will still occur, but we'll push them back farther and farther. So what will the era of the cell mean? Longer lives, healthier, longer lives.
1: Right.
0: It's one thing to live longer, but a lot of people don't want to live longer if they're living badly, if they're in constant pain or they're disabled. If you could have a longer life with enhanced well-being, that would be wonderful. That's what the era of the cell promises us. The era of the cell uh, gives us uh, great opportunities for using them in novel ways as intelligent on-demand factories to produce products that we can't even imagine. Uh, Even even though I'm well-versed in this field, uh, we really, we, it is impossible today to imagine the variety of products that will be available. That are intelligent sensors. They will detect diseases before they become apparent. Um, they will uh, allow us to uh, go into environments that would otherwise be impossible for us. Uh, so I'm I'm very excited about. Where we're going scientifically, and I think uh, it's one of the—I uh, like to call it what, the seventh epoch. It's—it's it's, if you—I'm—I'm I'm sorry, you can interrupt me, Trude, yeah, but yeah. I'm excited about these things. Um, if you th- ask yourselves what were, what are the things that have helped humanity over time? Well, it's not politics.
1: Right.
0: Um, it, it, it's certain technical things, obviously. Um, uh, but it's medical advances that have made the greatest difference in the health and well-being of populations. For example, um, understanding germs, germ theory. That made a huge difference because that led to antibiotics, which saved an unbelievable number of lives. Medical imaging, ranking, uh, Conrad Renkin invented um, the uh, x-ray uh, over 100 years ago. That began this march of imaging, Rankin couldn't have dreamt about magnetic resonance imaging and all the the interventional things that can be done because of imaging now, or the great new things that will be discovered yet. But it led to that cascade: vaccination it saved more lives than any single medical event in history. Um, the invention of antibiotics has saved millions of lives. Um, understanding community health, understanding the the Concept of contamination in water and how to fix that. These these are the things that have made the actual differences that have made people's lives better, as opposed to the next political movement uh, 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 and so on. So, the ear of the cell is the next one, the seventh of this. Uh, think of anesthesia. Imagine what was what was medicine like before anesthesia? It was horrible. It was, uh, operations were bloody dis- and, and screaming, pain. Uh, Anesthesia changed all that and the world changed. And so the ear of the cell will change the world. The question is, how will we shape it? What will we make of this great privilege that we're being offered?
1: So then uh, with enhancing healthcare experience through that cellular intelligence, how do we know that those cells are intelligent and kind of why does that matter for our health?
0: We know that they're um, intelligent because they display sets of characteristics, which can only occur with intelligent beings, uh, intelligent agents. What are those? Well, they collaborate, cooperate, they freely trade resources, they compete and normally when they compete, they're competing in a a way that's to the mutual advantage of, of of the entire collective, the entire Collaborative group of cells that we're dealing—the entire cellular ecology. Um, why is cancer so destructive? Because it doesn't play by those rules of collaboration, cooperation, codependence. It's intelligent, but its intelligence is directed at disrupting this fundamental balance that that these intelligent cells exert. Uh, intelligent cells problem solve. They communicate abundantly. They're chattering together all the time. These are all the things that we do. We declare these as intelligent. We engineer through cooperation, collaboration. We use a little competition in engineering. Right. We trade resources. We use tools. Uh, we use wood and iron and steel and ourselves engineer. Also, how do we know the engineer? Well, you and I are talking. We are their engineered products. It's hard to think of it in these terms, but that's exactly the correct way. It, it's engineering as a form of artful self organization. If, if the term seems like it, it's too human centric, that's only because we're missing the point. We're able to engineer because they're able to engineer. We, we, that, that reality was not apparent to us until now. So their intelligence are, I I would reverse it to you. Why do you think you're intelligent? I'm not, there's a rhetorical question. You would say, well, because I can problem solve, I can assess information, I can communicate it, I can uh, deliberate between potential outcomes, I can predict, I can choose not to act. Well, these are all the same things that self- we just didn't know it. We didn't have the tools to understand it. And we also had to have the frame of mind to be willing to understand it. Uh, and that took time. You know, it always takes time to to have a new perspective like this. And so that's where we are now, finally.
1: Right. So then kind of like with that engineering you were talking about, um, how do you think that the, uh, I guess, genetic engineering and testing and experimenting on humans uh, or crops or things like that is going to change in the in the next five to ten years well i think that
0: it has to be done very carefully i think there's no way to not do it it's there's no way to put it back in the box there's no way to interdict it entirely um uh, you it you, you just can't do it it will squeeze out somewhere around the world no matter what we do so that the answer is really to have the scientific community uh accept its duty its obligation to attempt to exert a supervisory role. And regulate and limit the extent of experimentation, this is being done there. There are limits to what you can do with human embryos and so on. Uh, It's the same with plants. Um, We have an ethical responsibility if we're going to uh, blunder around in genomes, which is what we're doing now, I mean, despite the concept that everything's being done with utter precision. Uh, we do have tools that are allowing us to, to cut and paste snips of genetic code with, with considerable uh, precision, the Casper systems and beyond our frame of reference today. But it's still, it's still filled with the possibility of unintentional consequences. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, the single most important aspect of all of this is to go slow, right. to, to attempt to make sure that it's that it's only being done at, at, at scientific institutions that have investigative review boards, and so that the, the possibility of an inadvertent action is kept low. What, one of the theories, and I'm not going to go into what I believe that's irrelevant, uh, but one of the theories about the the uh, COVID virus is that it was an engineered virus, that it came out of a lab. I don't know uh, for sure. Uh, but the fact is, it's not a stupid thought. It's a possibility. It's a realistic possibility that it could have inadvertently been uh, released, and it, it was just a mistake. Uh, there's no reason for us to discuss that. I don't think anyone knows the answer. but. Uh, I think that gives a very good idea of what can be done inadvertently. And that's the same thing in plant genetics and other things. We just don't understand exactly how all uh, all the levels of the nested ecologies work together. So let me explain this very briefly. Um, Your cells, your cells collaborate and cooperate. They collaborate and cooperate in groups. And you can think of, Think of your intestines as like an ecology, like a rainforest. Like like uh, your heart's another ecology. Your liver's another ecology. It, it's a bit of a simplification, but you're a superimposition of all of these ecologies, and then you roam the larger eco- ecology of of our
1: planet. Yeah, we don't really yeah, understand that, it, that. I've been. Interested in is kind of the the gut microbiomes and how they all work together for your skin and your the digestion and you know just the general exercise and nutrition aspect.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and exactly, what you're making my point for me better than I was making it. Thank you. Um, these microbiomes are everywhere in your body. Every every part of you has its tiny, sometimes tiny, sometimes enormous. So your gut. Your intestines have an enormous microbiome but and your skin has a a huge microbiome, but your um, pancreas has a microbiome and your heart has a microbiome. Your brain has a very tiny microbiome. Um, We used to believe that there are some microbes that sat inside the gut because it came in with food, but it really wasn't important to you. They were just hangers on. Now we know differently. Now we know that every part of our microbiome has its function. And we also know that almost all of these germs that we were identifying, these microbes, are um, not harmful. And, and worse, they're not harmful. And many of them are essential. Some of them we can't do without. So you couldn't survive without your gut microbiome. If that was eliminated, you would be eliminated too. To, uh, it, it exerts very important aspects in boosting your immunity and protecting you. So each of these microbiomes in each of these cellular ecologies works with your personal cells, your body cells, to create a balance. And so if we start affecting the genetic components of an organism, we don't know how it will relate to all of these nested ecologies. And even it's even true with plants. We just won't know what its ramifications are. How will it affect the plant's microbiome, which will affect which bugs it attracts, which will affect which further microbes it will attract, which might affect its not just its yield, but it could affect its susceptibility to fungus, uh, its susceptibility to other forms of blight. Again, all of this, it it might have um, an unexpected negative effect on our microbiome by consuming those plants. Again, none of this is an argument to not do any of it. It's an argument to go ahead and do it really carefully.
1: Yeah. Um, so we're gonna kind of jump off into something else a little bit different now. Um, thinking about you know the, the student in general, um, going from high school through college into a career path. Um, if you could think of yourself uh, it, or a student now in one of each of these, just four different parts of their time, so what advice would you have a high school student that's interested in getting into the medical field?
0: I think that, um, first of all, I think medicine is a noble field. I would encourage it. Uh, I think that it offers a high opportunity of satisfaction. I think it's difficult. I think it can be challenging and it can be wearying. Uh, but it's a, it's a noble field. I think of it as service, and I think service is extremely important. I think you need to to realize that you, if you succeed and become a physician, you will earn a good living, but you're no longer going to get rich. If that's, if your idea is that you really have to, you really need to be economically exceptional, that's not going to be the direction for you. You're, you're going into a field that will reward you nicely um and uh, it's it's not going to um launch you to the high levels of financial ability that prior generations of physicians enjoyed. it just it's changed it's it's not going to be that what things can you do uh, the first thing to do is get uh if you're really serious about going to medicine then not, you cannot be anything but a diligent studying person you just have to commit that that's that you want to study and you can study effectively and you're able to perform and you're willing to take tests and you don't mind sitting still. And you don't mind giving up something else in order to get the, the grades that you will need in order to get in. There's just no escaping it. The field is highly competitive and you, it, that won't change so the you need to explore yourself as we started with this you need to do a, a personal inventory and ask yourself are you that kind of individual or is this just that that narrative not for you? I don't really want to pursue grades. I don't really want to enter into that kind of struggle. Uh, it's best to know it right off because you'll just you'll be just batting yourself against a the wall there's you just have to go through the system to get into medical school you you have to go through the filtering system Now, i wish there's another way around it i wish i would be able to tell you oh well uh, you know those are there are certain people whose personalities are just so warm and wonderful that they're going to get into medical school and their grades can be ordinary you know just average it's it's untrue <laughs> it's yes it helps if you if you have that kind of a personality which gets to the second thing
1: so then, uh, taking that person that has done that personal inventory and they've enrolled uh, in a college, they're studying undergrad, they're doing the classes, they're getting the grades. Uh, what's some advice you would have for them as far as what to be looking for as to kind of trying to pick a maybe a speciality for them?
0: Yeah, I think actually in college you need to really focus it. Getting grades uh, in and of itself is not going to be enough. So good grades in high school is to get you to a, a nice college. And, and it, it doesn't have to be any of these great, you know, expensive universities, wonderful state schools, wonderful places all around the country. Uh, but in college, you have to accumulate the record that's going to get an admissions officer in medical school to look at you. And so everyone that's applying is going to have great grades. What can you do? So you have to ask yourself, what are the things that you can do to distinguish yourself? Well, um, one is uh, those extracurricular activities, mostly science based, internships and things like that, which will indicate that you have not merely, uh, you know, a, 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 you, you state your interests, but you've put your efforts behind it so that you can work in a lab. But the point of working in the lab is not just to work in the lab, the point of working in the lab is to start networking. It's college, it's an it's a thing that gets ignored all the time. But networking is important at every stage of your career, even in high school, networking in high school, uh, it is important to do because it teaches you how to do it at all future stages of your life, you're, you're in training, and networking is going to govern largely where you end up, we don't live in an era where you could just be a great kid from high school and then get good grades in college and you sail into medical school, that's over. I, I, I don't think things are better because it's over, but it is over. So you need to, to have a, a record that distinguishes you. And that means uh, some kind of something on your resume that speaks to special effort, special ability, special focus, and uh, 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 nothing beats having someone important say a nice thing about you. Right. Somebody, somebody important in science. So if you let's just say you you you, you go to the University of um, X, and at that X you choose to work in a microbiology lab, and there's a professor there and he likes you. Well, if he's going to write you a letter, that's a very good thing, in support of your candidacy. That that'll open some eyes. That'll distinguish you from the next person. And so it's you know, I hate to be the to say that you've got to to think in these long term, almost like a campaign term. but you have to. It, it's that's the system. and And there's no there is no disregarding the system. There's no alternative pathway in um, you know you can get into college without the high school grades if you're an athlete. but that that doesn't work for medical school. that doesn't matter. So yeah you know, there it's it's not. Getting into medical school is not like getting into college. Right. Getting to medical school is um, going through the filtering process and yep. coming out on the other end with exceptional grades. And now you need that extra thing. It, it's You need that, that one extra thing that carries you forward and distinguishes you from the tens of thousands of other applicants.
1: So then, coming out on the other side of that, after you've you've been through medical school, what advice would you have for that that student that's coming out of med school that's getting ready to look for their first job and uh, you know get in actually get in the field and and start working?
0: Um, that's a that's a, a great question. I'll, I'll mention uh, something that was, in, was truly my medical experience, and I think it's still medical school experience. I think it's still true today. I think it's was certainly true in my residency. So I was training to be a, an imaging doctor and um, and that's a four year training program. And. Um, I will say that I got no mentorship. Uh, that, except for one individual. I, I received no real. Advice from the medical school or from the residency um what i should what would life be like out there what should you be looking for what what's the proper um, medical practice for you in fact in in medical school no one even talks to you about what might be a good fit for you for your specialty if you choose to have one you know, beyond uh, to not be a primary care physician but you want to go into a uh, into a specialty Actually, you talk about that all the time with your classmates, but no, no faculty person talks. There's no lecture, and how you go about choosing this—it's just you know, whatever you want to do, it's fine. Uh, there's no discussion of economics, and I, I know that it's always you know we talk about economics and medicine, and everybody goes, "Oh, you shouldn't do that." You got to give it thought. I mean, you're making you're making a lifestyle decision. You're making an economic decision that will determine your range of um economic possibilities and it's not wrong to be thinking about it um, if uh, for example there's a huge difference in lifestyle between being a dermatologist and being uh, an obstetrician gynecologist that's going to be delivering 80 babies a year right. uh, just you're just making this choice there's nothing wrong with either field they're both good fields they're both uh highly rewarding for the person that wants them But it's not merely to say, I don't like, I'm not interested in skin and I am interested in babies. That's important and it might be true and it may be sufficient to carry you to one field or another. But you should be approaching this kind of decision by saying, with this decision comes a lifestyle, with this comes a set of economic variables. And maybe I ought to know those things ahead of time and they should be part of my full decision matrix. Suppose you're right on the, Edge between going into um, dermatology and renal medicine. Would it would it be pertinent if it were true? And I'm not saying it is true, but let's just say, would it be pertinent if it were true that one specialty earned double the other? Right. Would it matter? I mean, maybe not to, to each individual, but you have a right to to decide for yourself whether it matters to you. Um, and so you need. To to explore those things, um, you need to think about personality types. If you go into psychiatry, you're dealing with a certain set of personality types. You go into plastic surgery, you're dealing with another set of personality types. Um, you make these decisions. These are socio-economic decisions that are part of scientific interest levels. And then you have to individually put them together according to your own behavioral inventory, your own self-analysis. Your um, I think you need to be roughly rough and candid with yourself. What am I really like? What What do I really think I'm capable of sustaining for decades and be happy in it? Um, and then you make your marriage, as it were, with, with your field. And a lot of people change, you know, yeah. like a lot of regular marriages. Uh, people change all the time. Um, and uh, mostly those people that change have done the right thing because what they did, they found out what wasn't for them. Right. It was, they did the thing that just didn't turn out to be right. They made no mistake. Yep. They yep. they learned something else. It's like Thomas Edison when asked about the, the 10,000 things he tried that failed to make the light bulb, the filament for the light bulb. This I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I love the story. And he said, you know, I never failed. I just found out something didn't work and still that's that's a big part of of living experience that i don't think gets covered often i mean a guidance counselor is not going to tell you oh by all means go forward and fail i mean that doesn't sound very responsible but frankly going forward and failing is a lot better than not trying we've learned a lot through that failure and i think it's huge personal growth failure is an option
1: that that was kind of the next question I had was a, a mantra, or quote that you kind of live your life by, and I think that that kind of sums it up right about there with, the, I mean, talking about the changes in the cells and the body and then how that integrates into changes in the person and picking the, your career path and, um, you know, like you talked about the changing of the person. Uh, throughout their life, as, as yeah. That's their right. If you'll permit
0: me, I'd like to add a few more things, and I know we're going to be running out of time very shortly. Um, but when I received your, you know, the the inventory of things we talk about, which I appreciated, uh, and naturally I thought it over. Um, there are some additional things that I think are really important. I I really believe that it's important to to not be overly self-critical. And be forgiving. Um, you're going to make mistakes. It's fine. It's normal. Just. Realize you made a mistake, admit it, you know, fess up and move on. It's it. Failure is an option and it's not a disgrace. It, it's only an error. If you have committed so much to it, that you can't recover. With that in, in regard, though, you cannot accept the opinion of others about your potential. The, the person that stood next to me, a, a great man, and told me that I was a fool for thinking that I could shift opinion on evolution standing in front of a T-Rex right. or in late August afternoon uh, 15 years ago. Um, if I had accepted his opinion, I would never have started. I, but you know, there's something to be said for having um, not irrational, but um, a good deal of, of self-confidence and and self-belief. I think it's important to believe in yourself. I, I really, I, I've noticed that the first thing most people do when you pitch a new idea to them is to tell you it's bad. Negative responses are the rule, and I I don't I do not take. Uh, a, um, I don't get bothered by rejection anymore. I mean, rejection is fine. Uh, I, I, it bounces right off me. If I'm personally convinced that I'm going in the right direction, uh, I let rejection bounce off me. How else? What else can you do? I mean, suppose you're in the movie business. You're going to get rejected for roles all the time. Those people that are the stars that you admire are those whose self-belief is great enough that they think other people want to watch them in the movies. I mean, I I, don't, I know that I'm not that person, but those people are, are living examples of crazy self-belief. I mean, the, you wonder what gave them the idea that they think that they should be a star. Well, they are and that part of it was that crazy self-belief, that crazy self-confidence. So that's I, I think that's an important thing.
1: Absolutely. I really I really think that is really important as well. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for spending an hour with us today talking about your career and what you've done and been able to achieve throughout it. Um, if someone's interested in, in finding out more about you, uh, where's a, a website or a social media channel or something that they could follow or, or get in contact with you or find your new book at?
0: Yeah, they can go to bioverse.com, one word, OurBioVerse.com. And the new book out on Amazon just um, a few days ago is BioVerse. Okay. And it's all about this new era of the cells that we talked about. It'll it'll explain why you matter, why you leave a permanent signature on the planet through the the cells that that you are dealing with intelligently all through your life. And I think it could be a very important book for, for even for young people that's written um, as a, a a generally accessible science book, Uh, no math. And so uh, I I hope that some some of the
1: listeners will consider looking into it. Absolutely, well, thank you again. I really appreciate this time with you. Thanks Drew, I really enjoyed it. If you've made it this far into the episode, I wanna thank you again for watching. Please subscribe, share and comment below with any questions or comments you may have. If you're interested in more information about other professions within healthcare careers, Please visit healthsciencecoach.com and talk to your school counselor or academic advisor. As always, stay happy, healthy, and live life with passion.